Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, rest stop on the information superhighway. A moment to press pause and ask, what are we doing for whom and why? Winter may be coming, but we are an adaptable species. Our ability to withstand what lies ahead will depend on our resilience, our solidarity, and the extent to which we can keep our evolved social mechanisms functioning in a world that has been designed to atomize, isolate, and divide us. Playing for Team Human today, post-Carbon Institute fellow Richard Heinberg. So if we're looking to new technologies to solve our existing environmental and social problems, many of which actually are the result of side effects of previous technologies, then I think we're just caught in a circle where we're chasing our own tail. Richard, the author of Our Renewable Future, will be helping us figure out why so many of our immense strides for human progress have ultimately set us so far behind. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I normally don't become prey to distractions, particularly when those distractions are formulated just to distract us from something more important. But I did become interested in this whole uh distraction uh, by our administration into the football players who are kneeling at the national anthem. And in case you haven't been keeping up, there's a football player, Kaepernick, who uh, took a knee during the Star Spangled Banner before a football game last year as a way of calling attention to Black Lives Matter and some of the inequality that's plaguing uh, his community in particular, and I don't think it was meant necessarily as disrespect. I mean, he was there for the for the Star Spangled Banner, but he wanted to uh, leverage the moment to make people more aware of his concerns. And he 
pretty much threw away his NFL career in the process. He ended up, you know, an, an undrafted free agent because no wanted, nobody wanted to take on uh, this controversy, uh, which is what it turned into. And later this year, a few other players started taking a knee uh, during the Star Spangled Banner. And uh, Donald Trump got, I was going to say Donald Trump got really mad about it, but um, better, more easy to say Donald Trump played really mad about it and decided to reframe these uh, young men's efforts as uh, being against the American flag or against America's troops, that this was unpatriotic and a, a way of really stamping a new way of burning the flag. And it's real interesting because that was a um, one of Richard Nixon's techniques when he started to do really badly in public opinion. Um, he brought up the flag burning issue. The whole flag burning thing in the U.S. was was a, a Nixon uh, distraction from Watergate and the war and everything else that was that was destroying his career. And the funny thing is, it actually works. You know, 90% of Republicans agree with Trump that this is a terrible thing and that they they shouldn't be taking a knee, that it's unpatriotic. He went on to say that uh, any uh, uh, football team whose player goes and takes a knee, they should you know, fire, you know, fire that player. And I get that. Okay, there's that issue and he decides to use it and distract us with that. But then he goes further. And and this is where you can see Trump's sort of savant or genius begin to emerge. Uh, his object is, is fine. Take a side, create division, and push it as far as we can go. So he starts talking about the concussions that football players get saying, well, they're on their knee and their sport sucks now anyway, because of all these mamby pamby rules they're making to try to prevent these coddled black overpaid young men from getting injuries. So he's saying that, oh, the sport's less macho, less real, less compelling now that we're trying to prevent the players from getting brain damage. And then he says that, look, you know, hockey, those guys, they're still standing up. The hockey guys, they have a rough sport and they get all bloody and they're still standing up. You know, not these kind of coddled minorities. And we all know hockey is a, a, a largely, you know, white, white, white a sport. I mean, and Russian <laughs> for that matter. Uh, but the, the, the idea that, okay... I mean, think about it. Think about the election. Think about the objections to leftism, the objections to affirmative action. What uh, a better, more simple and strident way to frame that than look at this sport, which used to be we'd send a bunch of black guys out there to go clobber on each other. Now we're going to protect them. Now we're going to overpay them. And look what happens. They get uppity. Now they take a knee and they don't do the Star Spangled Banner. And for a lot of Americans, even ones who aren't racists, he triggers things. He triggers a little subconscious leftover racist resentment that's still there. You know, even if it's not in their public expressions, it's still in their subconscious. It's still latent. It's still certainly institutional. Or when he talks about uh, the hurricane in Puerto Rico, that that the 
the use of the third person to describe the people and the victims. It's they, them over there, those Puerto Ricans, they're resilient people. They got a lot of energy as if he's, you know, painting the picture of the Puerto Ricans, you know, dancing to fast, you know, Latin music or something. They'll be all right. They're over there. And when it's not working out, he argues, well, they can't help themselves. They're not doing there. We've sent all the supplies there. They don't know how to get it off the boat. So why divide like that? Why make all of these uh, divisions? I mean, really? First, because it maintains the frenzy. We hear these sort of racist, you know, dog whistles, as we call it, or this divisive language, and it gets us all freaked out. You know, second is it raises the bar for what constitutes uh, uncivil or racist behavior. If you hear this enough, if he talks like this enough, and these kinds of conversations begin happening, it creates a new normal for what is acceptable. What's an acceptable way to talk to women, about women, about uh, people of color? It it raises the bar in a bad way, meaning it, raises, it, it, it lowers the bar, but it, it, uh, uh, it raises the level of uh, what can be expressed. And, you know, finally, it speaks to the base, which is actually just a euphemism for galvanizing a racist movement, you know, for galvanizing um, this rage, this divisive rage. You know, he's saying what people are feeling on one level, but it's really, more importantly, a deliberate strategy to divide, to get hardcore supporters and really to get hardcore supporters to support hardcore Senate candidates who will ultimately protect Donald Trump from impeachment proceedings. That's the strategy. You know, if you're so confused as to why someone would do this, that's the strategy. It's in the short term, it's to distract us from Russia, distract us from the economy or healthcare or whatever else is going wrong. And the long term is his personal survival, that in order to stick it out, he's going to need some senators who are the most radical, staunch defenders of his kind of rhetoric and his kind of behavior. And in order to get those, he has to galvanize his base. It is about that 30 percent. It is that 30%. That's all he needs is 34% of the Senate to protect him, and then he gets to stay in office. It's not pretty, but it's where we're at, and it's what we're listening to. And the only real solution to this is for those of us in the media to call it what it is and not to accelerate it, not to provoke more of these hair-trigger reactions from ourselves and our audience, but to promote the opposite reaction to see, oh, look at this manipulation. Look at this attempt to trigger my panic button, to galvanize this space. Wow. Huh. And be calm about it. Be cool about it. Be connected about it. And then go on with the actual business at hand. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Our guest today is Richard Heinberg from the Post 
Carbon Institute. Hello, Team Human listeners. This is Stephen here. Just a brief interruption to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. Last week, we met our first Patreon goal. Your financial support is directly responsible for keeping us going week to week. Thank you so much for helping to make this show possible now and sustainable in the future. Your support is also helping make Team Human a project that involves an even larger team. Patreon subscribers are participating on the Team Human Slack channel. In fact, this week's guest, Richard Heinberg, comes thanks to the suggestion of Slack team members. We have a growing list of guest suggestions who we will feature in future episodes. So again, thank you for making this sustainable. Please share Team Human with your friends. Review us on iTunes. There's a link in the show notes. And back to Douglas and our special guest, Richard Heinberg, this week. One of the the problems I'm butting up against right now that I want, that I think you can, you may have already solved, is, <laughs> is, is the answer to our uh, technological, environmental, economic problem, is it to push through somehow or to go back somehow or is that even the wrong way of looking at it in other words are is it is it smarter to retrieve as many aboriginal technologies and crop rotation and biodynamics and lord knows what interconnected collaborative evolutionary models we can find or should we just hire monsanto to grow alfalfa on the ocean and call it a day right well i would put my money on uh, more traditional technologies frankly and i have a lot of reasons for that but just to get started you know every new technology has side effects and often it takes us decades to figure out what those are and begin to deal with them so if we're looking to new technologies to solve our existing environmental and social problems, uh, many of which actually are the result of side effects of previous technologies, then I think we're just caught in a circle where we're chasing our own tails. Um, And ultimately, I think the only way out of that is to deal with some, you know, really fundamental ethical and moral questions that we've been using technology to hide from. Uh, questions about population growth, questions about uh, inequality and redistribution, questions about the the scale of our economic activities in relation to uh, Earth's uh, resources and carrying capacity. Uh, So, I mean, the question then, I guess, partly becomes, you know, how far back do we go? No, so usually in my work, and I see in a lot of yours, you know, we kind of start at the beginning of the industrial age, where we started to use uh, machinery and corporations to really externalize the social, environmental, and economic impact of the things we were doing. Right. So we could put Indian people on the mechanical looms and just bring back the beautiful rugs to England. <laughs> <laughs> Magic! You know, but... 
is that sort of the, the sort of the starting place for this real, uh, almost intentional ignorance about the effects of the things that we were doing? Um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess in an ultimate sense, you'd have to say that the only really sustainable way that human beings can exist on the planet is as hunter-gatherers and maybe even without fire. But nobody, we can't go there. <laughs> I mean, not seven and a half billion of us can't go there. It's, uh, it's, it's impractical. It's impossible at this point. Right. So you'd say what? The invention of agriculture in the axial age kind of sent us off on the wrong path. I mean, the Bible would agree with you. Yeah. You know, Cain, Cain sacrificed uh, uh, grain and got, <laughs> got punished by God. You know, the one who was the, the, the shepherd, uh, you know, little Abel, sacrificed a sheep and he was fine. Yeah. And there are plenty of archaeologists and anthropologists who agree with that, you know, that uh, when we transition to eating mass-grown grains, our skeletons became smaller and shorter and all sorts of diseases appeared. Once we started you know, living with domesticated animals, we, got, uh, we started sharing all kinds of diseases back and forth. And, and it's all been, in a, in a sense, it's all sort of been downhill ever since, even though from the standpoint of human wealth and control over our environment, it seems like nothing but progress ever since. So, you know, those, those are two very different ways of looking at the situation. And I, I think you could uh, put your finger at any point along that trajectory and say, well, you know, we should have stopped there. Or if we could have stopped there, we could have a much more sustainable situation and maybe even a happier one for a lot of people. But it's clear that where we are right now, we're going... Uh, off the charts, just off off the uh, the spectrum of, of what we'll be able to sustain for much longer. Well, right. Partly because, I mean, it's partly digital technology, but really, uh, you know, moving from the, I, I guess it was really the oil, uh, you know, the fossil fuel burning technologies that let us really start digging stuff up a whole lot faster than a yeah. farmer with a ox and a hoe. Yeah, abs you know? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the, the technological transitions, fire was a really important one. And then uh, agriculture. And then you go to fossil fuels. And in some ways, that's the most fateful of all, because they've enabled us to increase our population, our uh, extraction of resources, our ability to transform resources and transport them and transport ourselves to a far greater degree than, than anything else in, in previous human history. So, I mean, the way I used to look at, at you know, Judaism and Talmud and mm. all was that it was trying to prepare us for this. In other words, that the, the, the ancients understood that, oh my, if we're going to transition from this kind of Bedouin, uh, almost a hunter-gatherer-like existence, I mean, they had their own sheep, but right. you know, they were wandering around the desert and... Uh, when we're going to move from that to a planted, agriculture-based civilization, we're going to have all sorts of new concepts coming into place, like property and debt and storehouses and ownership. And, oh my gosh, we're going to need to develop an ethical tradition in order to handle a civilization like that. Right. But we didn't really get one, though, for some reason. Yeah, and I think um, as technology has sped up, as uh, as economic growth has sped up, 
our ethics have fallen ever further behind. You know, the, the ethics that we would need to enable us to adapt to a world of high technology and fossil fuels, you know, maybe that would take 500 or 1,000 years to develop, but we haven't had 500 or 1,000 years. We've had a couple of hundred years, and we still have basically the same drives operating within us and within society as a whole as we did, you know, back in uh, the 17th century. So we're still treating the world as if it were an unlimited storehouse of goodies, even though the, the, the environmental limits to, to climate, to resources of all kinds are staring, in, staring us in the face. You know, ultimately, I think uh, we would develop a, an, a, an ethic based on well, for lack of a better word, sustainability. You know, the notion that we cannot increase the rate at which we use non-renewable resources, that to do so is, is evil. You know, I mean, that's what ethics are all about. It's identifying what, what we shouldn't do. And we shouldn't extract and use renewable resources faster than they can replenish. Those are two, you know, commandments that didn't get written on the stone tablets, you know, 3,000 years ago. But today we, we really need them. And without them, we're, we're banging our heads against uh, extinction. Well, indeed. I mean, the, the issue is when I bring this up, in particular with my kind of West Coast Silicon Valley friends, they'll say, oh, Doug, it's because you can't envision what our technologies are going to be able to do. Mm. So, yeah, you know, if you were a caveman, you can't deplete your aquifer faster than, you know, the centuries or millennia it takes for water to flow through rocks and get there. But now we can just desalinate the ocean <laughs> or we'll put solar windows and and god bless elon musk that all our roofs are going to supply more electricity and we won't need to uh dig anything out of the ground ever again right and you know there are certainly technologies on the horizon that will help us adapt to nature's limits i mean it's uh, i'm all in favor of replacing fossil fuels with renewable energy sources like solar and wind and there are other things that will help at the margins. But I spent a year looking specifically at renewable energy and the, the prospects for renewable energy and looking at the rates of investment and, and technological change. And I came away from that, uh, well, with a book to show for it. It's called Our Renewable uh -huh. Future. But also with the conclusion that the transition isn't going nearly fast enough. It'll have to go about 10 times faster and there are all sorts of adaptations we're going to have to make to using intermittent energy sources, energy storage, capacity redundancy, uh, demand adaptation that are going to require not only tons more investment, but also changes in the ways we use energy in our, in our habits and expectations. And that's, that part of the equation never really gets talked about. Uh, you know, it's all usually about, well, it's just a political problem. All we have to do is get the fossil fuel industries out of uh, the halls of government and the transition to solar and wind will, will be driven by market forces and, and we'll, we'll all be fine. But it's not nearly that simple. We're talking about a transition to 
energy sources that are, have fundamentally different characteristics that's, that are going to require a shift in basically our whole economy and whether we can even have a growth-based economy with renewable energy sources is, I think, an open question. So again, we're avoiding the the need to confront basic changes in our uh, in our behavior and expectations. We're avoiding that by appealing to technologies that, in some ways, uh, maybe don't exist, or in other ways, you know, don't exist at scale. So we're not just talking about the shift from a uh, a Chevy Malibu to a Tesla here. Right. I mean, and that's partly because, correct me if I'm wrong, but a Tesla, don't you have to send kids into a cave in Africa to get some <laughs> rare earth metals to build these batteries? And isn't there a limited amount of that stuff? Right. Yeah, I think we there's enough lithium for us to build uh, one generation of uh, electric cars with batteries. But once those get old and have to be replaced, then we start running into trouble. Conventional economic theory says whenever any resource starts to get scarce, the price goes up, and then that results in substitution. We find something else that will do the job just as well. Well, the problem is the periodic table of the elements is not infinite. And so you know, at some point, we start running out of things to substitute to. And when I say some point, I'm not talking about a thousand years from now. You know, we're running through the periodic table in short order. And, you know, some things are, you know, really, really abundant. I don't think we're going to run out of sand or limestone. But in terms of, of materials that have unusual properties that enable us to build Teslas and even wind turbines and solar panels... Some of these elements are becoming scarce already. Right. So then the answer is not to find uh, necessarily new ways to fulfill our current energy requirements, but to somehow back up on our energy requirements. And that's what nobody wants to hear, because energy is the basis of the whole economy. Without energy, nothing happens. And if you want economic growth, realistically, you're going to have to have increased uh, availability of energy. There's some wiggle room. Uh, economists talk about decoupling, you know, decoupling energy growth from, from uh, economic growth. And there's some evidence that a little of that has occurred in the past. We might be able to get a little bit more by uh, changing to uh, solar and wind away from coal and natural gas. You know, when you burn coal and natural gas to produce electricity, you waste a lot of energy in the process. So if we, if we make the renewable energy transition, then we'll avoid a lot of that waste, and that'll give us some more efficiency. But there have also been some recent studies that have called the whole question of uh, economic decoupling into doubt, showing that uh, most of the decoupling that economists point to in the past has really just been false accounting. In the end, you know, if we don't have more energy, it's not going to be possible to grow the economy forever. But Well, that gets yeah. you to the question, though, of why do you have to grow the economy exactly. forever? I mean, that's what my last book was looking at, was we've accepted that as if it's a, a premise of nature when it's really just the rule 
of a 13th century economic operating system that was invented to slow the rise of the merchant middle class. You know, and if that's all it is, if it's not a foundational principle of human transaction, but one hack by one small group of wealthy people to solve a very particular problem, then we should be able to abandon it a heck of a lot easier than uh, than it seems. One would certainly hope so. <laughs> I mean, as it is, you know, politicians of every stripe, uh, just about all economists, tell us we need economic growth constantly in order to stave off financial and economic collapse. You know, we need economic growth in order to provide jobs, returns on investment, increased tax revenues for government services, all this stuff. But, you know, the economy cannot grow forever on a finite planet. That's a simple reality. And the sooner we understand that, the the sooner we'll be able to design an economy that actually does work within the bounds of, of this, you know, small blue-green marble floating in space. Right. I mean, again, you know, not to, I keep getting reminded of the Bible when I'm talking to you, I guess because because we're really talking about, you know, uh, instilling Western civilization with an right. ethical tradition. But again, that's what, you know, what Joseph went and taught the Pharaoh, you know, oh, when you have seven good years, store up all this stuff because then there's not going to be any left for seven years and then you can put everybody into debt. You know, so we we invented this debt-based economy, which is the evil. I mean, that's what enslaved everybody. And we're in that now. We're in 400 years of an enslaving debt-based economy that we've come to regard as uh, the conditions of nature. And so decoupling that, in a sense, or disconnecting that from from our reality seems, uh, well, it seems a requirement if we're going to move back within the carrying capacity right. of our planet. And we've gotten so addicted to growth that, you know, as growth slows down, and it is slowing down, I mean, uh, economists even have a name for it now. They, they call it uh, secular stagnation. The global economy has been stagnating for the last decade or so, and we've made up for it by hitting the accelerator on debt, you know, uh, central banks with quantitative easing right. and super low interest rates and so on. So the idea is, uh, you know, consume now and pay later. We, we pump up consumption now in order to grow the economy, but we do it by creating these obligations for the future that are never going to be repayable. Right. That require even more growth. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, let's call it what it is. Uh, and these things never end well. Uh, and there are plenty of historic precedents for societies that have, you know, tried to evade uh, limits by pumping up the debt machine. And, and it always ends the same way. Which are some examples, ready examples of that? Oh, well, th there's a whole uh, book called Secular Cycles where uh, an economist and an ecologist looked at uh, about a dozen examples in over the last thousand years, um, and you know it's the, the they found the pattern and uh, it was very clear and it repeated ex it repeated itself again and again, and typically it's about three hundred years from the beginning of an economic cycle till the till it busts, and uh, we're 
at the tail end of such a cycle right now. I mean, about 300 years ago is when the fossil fuel revolution just began. And, uh, and now uh, all the characteristics of, of our, our present age align perfectly with the characteristics that um, Turchin and uh, forget the other author's name identified. I mean, in some ways, what you're saying reminds me of John Stuart Mill, the, yeah. the English philosopher who really, he was the first one I saw who used that phrase that you use a lot, which is carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. And the problem when I find anyway, when I start to make arguments like yours about the carrying capacity of the planet and looking, living within our limits, is that it's not only considered somehow un-American and anti-capitalist and anti-Christian and, and uh, anti-everything, but uh, I'm getting, I get accused of being a sort of Club of Rome Malthusian pessimist, mm-hmm. as if Malthus was somehow scientifically disproved. You know, was he? Uh, well, over the short run, yes. I mean, here's the thing with carrying capacity. It's possible to stretch carrying capacity temporarily. And we've done that. You know, we've, uh, we, we've increased global food production dramatically over the past few decades with the Green Revolution. But when you do that, what you, what you typically do is you erode long-term carrying capacity and and we've certainly done that. We know we've uh, we're losing about 25 billion tons of topsoil every year, as a result of our modern agricultural practices. And similarly, we're we're drawing down uh, ancient aquifers. The bees are going extinct. Uh, on and on and on. You know, the prospects for humanity's future food supply are are pretty dire, as a result of the things we've done to increase the food production over the short term. So over the short run, you know, the last couple of hundred years, Malthus is disproven, you know, but over the long run, I'm not so sure. And as far as the Club of Rome goes, um, you know, the 1972 Limits to Growth study was, as far as I've been able to tell, uh, one of the most important pieces of intellectual work in human history. And all of the noise that a lot of conventional economists made uh, pretending to debunk it was just that. It was just noise. They took a few figures out of context and, and uh, tried to debunk something that, in fact, is showing us exactly where we are and where we're going. Right. The same way that uh, you know climate change got debunked because they took a line or two out of an email that called some anti-climate change scientist an asshole, you know, and then all of a sudden it's one big conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then then there's the folks, you know, like Steven Pinker, say, who say, look, things are getting better. The world's gotten less violent every century. You know, you can get a tuna fish sandwich now that the average poor person lives better than a monarch did 200 years ago. So shut up and stop complaining. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, you know, there's a saying, the, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. Mm. And I, I think we are seeing the, uh, the disorder that's being generated by our current ways of living in parts of the world where you and I don't live, you know, places where people who um, 
are are happy with the current state of affairs, you know, would prefer not to think about. And so you look at places like Venezuela and um, Puerto Rico and Syria, and and you know, basically things are just falling apart, or they've been run over by climate change or or war. And yeah, we've always had war. We've always had natural disaster. But the kinds of natural disasters and wars that are being set up now as a result of the way we're running the world are more uh, serious and widespread than anything we've seen in the past. I, I you know, <laughs> I don't want to be uh, apocalyptic here, but you know, if we keep going the way we're going now, climate change, resource depletion, overpopulation and the rest are setting us up for decades down the line in this century when what we're seeing in Venezuela, Puerto Rico, and Syria now will be the norm across the world. The very same sets of circumstances that that led to what's going on in those countries is is emerging across the board. And unless we change what we're doing, that's where we're headed. Well, one of your main approaches to initiating that change is to build, you know, what you're calling the community resilience movement, you know, as part of the post-carbon Institute. Now to, to enable community resilience, are we talking about changing human nature or sort of retrieving some aspect of human nature that we left behind? Yeah, I think it's unwise to count on changing human nature because it's taken (laughs) hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to evolve to to what it is. Um, But it's definitely true that our current system pushes human nature in certain directions, you know, with advertising, with market-driven economies, we push our, our human nature in the direction of, uh, of competition, of addictive behaviors, and that's not the sum total of who we are. You know, we human beings also have lived in societies that were held in check by ethical systems that talked about the, the evils of, of greed and gluttony and talked about the virtues of sufficiency and generosity. We've forgotten those, uh, those virtues and vices to a very large extent because they don't fit with the necessities of the market economy. But they're just as much rooted in human nature as, you know, uh, staring at screens all day and ordering stuff on Amazon. Um, so it's, I, I think what we, what we have to do deliberately is begin to revive those aspects of human nature, those aspects of ourselves that, that we've let slip away. And what do you see as the, the sort of the mechanisms for that? I mean, when I hear you talk, I think, you know, yeah, my nonfiction and fact-based work has been fine, and you know, this show is nice because it sort of rallies people together, but it kind of makes me want to do, you know, theater or nursery school curriculums <laughs> yeah. or 
Uh, do you know what I mean? I, I almost want to get to some more fundamental place in, in human consciousness. Right. You know, when we talk about this stuff um, person to person, people all go, well, yeah, of course, that's just common sense. Uh, sharing more, having more of a sense of community, you know, being more more generous and less greedy, all that stuff is, is just, just makes sense. And in a small group of people, it's natural to us, and that and those instincts still come to the fore. That's that's why we talk about community resilience rather than you know trying to overcome the market economy and you know or defeat capitalism or something like that. Those are those are long term <laughs> idealistic projects that people have been talking about for for decades. Um, what makes more sense is paying attention at the level where where those those values still predominate at the at the community level and doing what we can at the community level to build the resilience that we're going to need over the next few decades in order to survive the consequences of of how we're living right now uh, resilience is the ability to bounce back and maintain basic functions and identity uh, and that's that's what we're going to need in the age of, of climate change and, and all the rest. Uh, and and the best place to build that resilience is at the community level where we can talk with one another in ways that that uh, get around the, the, the kinds of cultural messages that are dividing us in, right now. I mean, we, you look at the at the political landscape in America and everybody agrees we're getting too polarized well, you know, what's the solution for that? Sure, there. I'm sure there are candidates we can uh, vote for and so on. But I think the, the most important solution for that is just for us to get out and talk to one another uh, more locally and, and see each other as fellow community members rather than as, you know, red or blue or, you know, members of, of categories. Right. It's harder and harder now, though. It's interesting. The, uh, uh, you know, the top down presidential right. divide has made it harder for people in real communities to gather. You know, the the town hall meetings in my town are, are less populated than mm. they used to be because people don't want to run into the other side. It's it's tricky. I mean, but we have to kind of renegotiate our uh, our community connections and i suppose nothing will do that faster than a big storm or a economic crisis if there's no food in the grocery store the town well the town will either have to come together or everyone's going to hole up with their shotguns and protect their right. their cupboards. And, and here again you know human nature is such that when crises like that hit people actually tend to come forward with, with pro-social behaviors uh, if the electricity grid goes down, people come out of their houses, start talking to one another, uh, and doesn't matter, you know, whether they're red or blue or brown or green or or whatever, you know, people tend to. It's not universal, of course, but the the overwhelming tendency is for people to share what they have, try to figure out how to solve their problems, help each other out. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's that's what we need to count on. It's the longer term response to economic decline that's that gets uh, tricky because if people feel the economy uh, declining and they don't have a, a good way of uh, dealing with that, 
to shield themselves from the, the consequences or to uh, negotiate their way with with others through it, uh, the result tends to be scapegoating. You know, people look for somebody to blame. And I think that's where we are right now as a country. You know, our, our economic uh, vision for what for where we should be right now is not being met by reality. You know, we're, the economic inequality in the country is growing. Uh, and a lot of folks, uh, particularly in in the in the working class are are seeing that they're being left behind and they're looking for somebody to blame so it's it's easy for for you know a demagogue to come along and play on that but uh it 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 only hurts us in the long run right i mean it's funny when you were talking about how pro-social behaviors tend to emerge you know in a blackout or a flood i mean they seem to emerge but they seem to last for like yeah. three days <laughs> And then I remember when there was a, a Hurricane Sandy came and knocked out all the power in my area and people were good for two or three days and then they're on the gas lines with their cans for the generators and then the fights start to break out in the parking lot of the Home Depot and I was sort of amazed. This is Westchester, you know, and guys are rolling up their sleeves and fighting out in a parking lot. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if it takes, you know, three days of no heat to break down uh, uh, social decorum in a wealthy New York neighborhood. Um, this doesn't right. bode well for uh, our our disaster that's, that's why we're talking about community resilience, building building up the ability of, of communities to uh, to maintain that social cohesion in a changing landscape. Because those changes are on the way. It's not just uh, one hurricane here or there. Fortunately, you know, resilience science is uh, something that's uh, been, you know, researched and developed to quite a, a, a great degree over the last decade or so. There's a lot that uh, many researchers have, have, have done to, um, to bring this into practical cases, and that's what we're trying to do at Post Carbon Institute with programs like our Think Resilience series, and we have a new community resilience reader that's just being published now. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole scope of ideas that we can share that I think could help a tremendous amount to uh, get us through this time. So how would you imagine a, a tool like the Community Resilience Reader, which has, you know, real programs and steps in it for how to do this, who do you imagine, you know, buys or downloads that? And, and then how do they bring that to their community? Does it have to be the mayor or the, uh, you know, the, the principal of the school? Or can just some listener now who lives in a town and wants to start initiating these processes, can they just decide to do it? Yeah, yeah. It's all of the above. I mean, certainly if you've got the mayor and, and other city officials on board, that's very helpful. But it often doesn't start at that level. Often it starts at the level of uh, ordinary citizens who see the importance and they bring it to the attention of others within the community and maybe have classes at the local library. And we have, you know, uh, the Think Resilience video series is perfect for that. And then it can go on to doing a community resilience assessment. And that's something that really should be done in cooperation with local officials. Otherwise, you know, the, those local officials aren't going to pay any attention when it's done. 
But I think it's pretty easy to make the argument these days that that every community needs to be prepared. So how do you get prepared? Well, you start by assessing where you are now. What are the likely threats? What are local assets? How who are the people within the community who are tasked with responding to these foreseeable crises and how can they be supported by the rest of the community? Um, whether it's here in California with earthquakes or along the Gulf Coast with hurricanes or, you know, every place has foreseeable crises. And in, in virtually every instance, um, you know, you can talk to people in authority and they'll tell you, well, we're, we're not nearly as prepared as we should be. So uh, this, is, this is really a matter of taking the position of the adult in the room and working with others who are uh, concerned about more than just their own immediate welfare, looking to the future and looking to the, the welfare of society as a whole. And when, we, when people get together on that basis, it um, it really provides a, an, an avenue, an opportunity for for some really mature thinking. I mean, in a a, a reasonable best case scenario, with topsoil depletion being what it is, mm-hmm. with the bees going extinct, with peak oil either having happened or about to, with geopolitical instability, do you see community resilience as a way to actually usher kind of civilization as we know it through this gauntlet or as more of a way for people, for human beings to try to pick up the pieces uh, after this kind of zombie apocalypse <laughs> event uh, necessarily happens? Well, I think it's both. I think it's really important that we preserve as much as we can of what we've achieved over the past centuries. You know, we have discovered really, really valuable things about how the human body works and about the universe and physics and chemistry and uh, ecology and on and on. And at great societal cost, you know, we've invested a tremendous amount in, uh, in learning these things. And you look back at ancient Egypt, for example, and what what was probably lost when that civilization collapsed, or Rome, or Greece. What we have, you know, today after the you know the burning of the Library of Alexandria and all the rest, is just you know a remnant of of what those civilizations achieved. And we're in a, a kind of similar situation now, where you look at how. Our information is stored at the, you look at the, at the vulnerability of our technological systems like the electricity grid, and it's very, very easy to spin out a scenario where just about all of that could be lost and people, you know, just a few decades from now would have no access to the amazing cultural achievements that we all take for granted it doesn't have to be that way. We could, at this point, invest a relative trivial amount of our societal abundance in making these achievements more resilient. And and if we don't, you know, then I I think future generations are not going to have very kind words for us. Yep. And it could take them some centuries or longer to... um 
pick up the pieces and right. uh, get to a new, a new wonderful, interesting place. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us on Team Human. I mean, your work is is super important, and I'm I'm glad that it's uh, reaching more and more people, and particularly the uh, the recent manifesto. Yeah. Um, there's no app for that. Technology and morality in in the age of climate change, overpopulation, and biodiversity loss, um, which has a nice uh, video that goes along with it, um, is a good, easy, accessible way for people to. Uh, begin to uh, pursue this line of thought and hopefully the this line of action yep so thank you for joining for for being on team human it's it's been great talking with you doug i've really enjoyed our conversation thanks for listening to team human if listening just isn't enough for you there's more become a subscriber to team human gain access to our slack channel get some free signed books and join us in making this whole thing happen Go to teamhuman.fm and click on support or go to patreon.com slash teamhuman. Team Human is a team effort and our team is managed by producer and engineer Stephen Bartolome. We'll be back in the Media Squat next week with new strategies for keeping this strange and wonderful project called humanity alive and well. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.